Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Stacey Finelli. Stacey is a therapist in Southern California working in two group practices, one specializing in neurodivergence and one specializing in eating disorders. She first noticed a tremendous amount of overlap between the two while working at eating disorder treatment centers at all levels of care that were set up for neurotypical clients. She facilitates a support group for neurodivergent individuals in eating disorder recovery, as well as a general adult ADHD group. She works closely with RDs for neurodiversity to educate providers on neurodiversity affirming care within the eating disorders field. Today, we talk about the overlapping complexities between eating disorders and neurodivergence. Welcome, Stacy. Welcome. Thank you. So you do very interesting work in terms of the intersection between people who are neurodivergent and working with eating disorders in that population. Yes, I think that it's definitely a part of eating disorders field that is kind of emerging as extremely relevant and it's not talked about yet as much as it needs to be. Yeah. So I'm curious kind of how you develop the specialty and what about it is of interest to you. Um, so I started working out in traditional eating disorder treatment with all neurotypes. And I noticed that for some, it just wasn't working. There's uh, certain things weren't clicking. And I wondered about how difficulties with attention and sensory issues were making traditional treatment inaccessible. So um, for eating disorders, for eating disorders. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So kind of this idea that there's this, they kind of require a little bit of a different formulation of their symptoms and the treatment for kind of more neurodivergent individuals. Yes. Got it. So I guess my question is, where do you see the overlap and what did you notice and how do you approach treatment at this point in your, in your practice? So one thing I noticed, I think the first thing I noticed was that uh, neurodivergent folks seem to be unhappy being in treatment. And I often chalk that up to just, well, it's not a pleasant place. Like recovery is uncomfortable. Right. But the more I looked at and the more I talked to people, what I realized was it wasn't helping and it was asking them to be somebody that they weren't. Right. It was asking them to mask in a lot of ways and to perform recovery and what it's supposed to look like for a neurotypical person. And that was really challenging. And so uh, we talking about, well, what's recovery on your terms? And that didn't necessarily look like sitting down and eating three meals and three snacks a day and being able to wear jeans and be confident. And there's this kind of like storybook image of recovery that, that doesn't align with people who struggle to regulate their attention, people who have a lot of sensory issues and, and just want to be able to eat adequate nutrition and don't necessarily prioritize variety and for that to be okay with the world around them. And so, yeah, there's so much more, but I think those are like, those are the things where it occurred to me that this, this was something unique. And I think it's also important to discuss kind of just for the listener neurodivergence. So in terms of just, what are we talking about when we're talking about people who are neurodivergent? 
Right. So it's kind of, it's based on this idea that everybody has a neurotype and um, you can be kind of quote unquote neurotypical, or you can diverge from the typical and therefore you're neurodivergent. And so that encompasses any mental illness, technically learning disabilities, and then more specifically what I deal with, which is autism, ADHD. And so there's a common misconception that neurodiversity refers just to ADHD and autism. It's actually to anyone who kind of thinks outside the box, who, who thinks differently. Got it. So do most people, are they identified as having an eating disorder? And then later on, it looks as if the treatment that you typically implement for those sorts of disorders doesn't really work in a way that you expect it to work. And at that point, do people then think about, okay, what else is going on? Why isn't this working or kind of moving in the direction that we would expect? So some people come into treatment already knowing that they have ADHD or or autism, which can be really helpful because that can inform what our goals are going to be like. And, you know, as I mentioned before, what, what is recovery actually going to look like? Not that we do a watered down version of it, but that it doesn't have to look the same for everyone. Eating disorder treatment can also be a great opportunity to identify, to realize, oh, hey, I might not be neurotypical just based on that their treatment team's conceptualization of why something might not be working. Like if somebody is resistant to traditional treatment, why? And I I think like, I've actually seen that really commonly happen where somebody, where part of somebody's recovery is grieving the years that they spent without a diagnosis, the years that they thought that there was something wrong with them. And then that's ongoing work past recovery, but that trying to fit a mold in neurotypical society is very much tied to why somebody might develop an eating disorder. So there's definitely different ways it could go depending on whether somebody already knows about their diagnosis. Right. And another question is even before the eating disorder treatment, what qualities of neurodivergent individuals could then lead to disordered eating behavior or what looks like disordered eating behavior? What, what do you typically see? Yeah. So masking in itself, trying to be good enough, trying to be worthy, and then trying to body image wise, either fit into society, fit in with people, whereas personality wise, um, neurodivergent person might feel like they don't fit in in other ways. Cause there's a lot of social cues that are missed or neurodivergent kids are often targeted as being different or experience bullying to a greater extent. And so um, an eating disorder might be a really convenient way to cope with those things. There's also the, the sensory piece with the need to eat the same foods, which is in itself is fine. It's just when that leads to decreased nutrition, sometimes dependence on those foods or supplements in order to get just the bare minimum nutrition, that's when we start to see what could turn into avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is extremely common in neurodivergent folks in particular, and often has an overlap with other eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, because it is so restrictive. And what is the treatment then? How do you approach treatment if there is this rigidity around food. How do you even approach the treatment? So the affirming way to approach it, the way you might approach it with neurodivergent person who is, who is restrictive is 
to really emphasize preferred foods and to allow for those to make up the majority of somebody's diet. So I, as a therapist, definitely need to have a, a dietitian on somebody's team here for this because there's a lot of talking about foods and nutrients that's outside my scope. But I think traditionally and harmfully, unfortunately, these restrictive disorders are treated solely with exposure therapy. And to be affirming, there needs to be an approach that is more collaborative with a client and incorporates foods that they're ready for and creates positive associations with these foods and also tends to the sensory experience of eating itself, whether that's lighting sounds, uh, vestibular inputs. I mean, working with an occupational therapist is, would be absolutely outstanding. Unfortunately, access to that is, is limited, but there's so many external things that we can do to keep our clients in the driver's seat of their treatment. And my hope is that that's kind of the way that treatment is turning is that we're revolutionizing. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're turning away from exposure therapy and we're, we have to differentiate between what is the eating disorder? No, I don't want to try that because that scares me because it's calorically dense or that's going to affect my body in this way that I'm scared of because of my internalized fat phobia, perhaps. And what is neurodivergence, which is I'm not scared of it. I can't, I can't handle that. That will cause potentially sensory trauma that will overwhelm my system. I see. I did want to mention, have you talk a little bit about ADHD and how that might play out with eating disorders? What are some kind of connections that you typically see between those two? Sure. So in addition to the just general experience of rejection more because of different like social barriers and stuff and and wanting to compensate for that, there's um, difficulty with regulating stimulation where food can just be boring, especially compared to something that a person might be really hyper-focused on. So kind of trying to gamify food and eating and therapy in general can be an important part of the process with working memory um, for getting to eat is a common problem that I see. And then there's also the kind of the misperception of time can result in low productivity and shame and then more compensation. Here's one thing I can be good at. And then also executive dysfunction shows up in the kitchen and at the table, um, prepping food, acquiring food, going grocery shopping, All of those things require motivation that is just inherently lacking in ADHD. And so therapy and treatment is a lot of troubleshooting that. How do we make, maybe not something you look forward to, but how do we find alternative options? What do your support people need to know? And then also the impulsivity factor definitely plays a role more so in bulimia. I think there's this idea that when somebody is seeking dopamine, food is a great source of that. It's a little more complex than that, whereas often people will restrict and then they're seeking the dopamine after restricting. So there's still the like binging isn't the problem, restricting is the problem thing to factor in, but there is stimulation that comes from food. And also ADHD meds tend to suppress appetite. So that can be either a gateway where somebody develops an eating disorder because of that, or 
it can just complicate treatment where, okay, we need to treat the ADHD because it's helping you with symptoms that you're compensating for through the eating disorder. But if we do that, we're going to suppress your appetite. And so we have to like make sure that you have the tools to troubleshoot and the motivation to eat through it, to eat anyway. So that's really where a dietitian becomes important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're kind of talking about all these things that, I mean, it's so complex, right? Because both disorders are so complex within themselves. I mean, I'm assuming the listener maybe is someone who's wondering, they maybe know somebody that is suffering from an eating disorder and they're wondering if they are neurodivergent or they are neurodivergent and wondering if there is a little bit of an eating disorder going on and how to even get the right care. I mean, how does one even navigate trying to find a clinician who understands both of these things? Ooh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Let me know when you find out. I have a very small list of clinicians who, who specialize in the intersection nationally. So it's challenging. I think some of the important questions to ask are, what does this clinician understand about the difference between treating a neurotypical client and treating a neurodivergent client? And how do they approach things differently? Do they use exposure therapy? Like, what is their understanding of the nuances of sensory challenges? Is it something to just power through or do they meet you where you're at? So it's a lot of, it's important to, to not be afraid to interview your perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately at this point, there's not like a database somewhere. I'm hoping that there will be, I'm hoping that people will. And I think through social media, actually, people are starting to identify more and more that, that there is a link. I'm seeing a lot of TikToks of people going to the grocery store with sunglasses on and, and normalizing that, which is fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe you should be write a book. So, so people kind of, kind of get it out there in terms of thinking about kind of the link and thinking about kind of how to approach these two through an informed lens, really. Right? Yeah. I'm learning more every session I have about the experience and understanding that there's no one experience that any neurodivergent person has right. um, of yeah. food. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking on this complex topic in this short interview. I really do appreciate it. And I think it's just kind of the beginning of helping people understand this link between these two things. And I mean, I'll make sure that we have your information listed. So if the listener is interested in learning a bit more about you and the way you that you work, they'll be able to easily find you. Sure. I appreciate that. Thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.